Uh, my name's Jenny. I'm the associate pastor here for one more week. <laughs> Um, for one more week, for if you haven't heard, I uh, will be transitioning away from my position uh, after next Sunday here. I'm going to be joining my husband, Matt, at his church, Trinity Presbyterian in Shoreline. Uh, so today is obviously bittersweet for me. Um, but uh, it's my last sermon with you all. I, I want to just tell you at the outset how much I've appreciated getting this opportunity specifically with you all. Uh, you've kind of let me grow into this role over the first four years of my pastoral calling, and thank you for the grace you've given me to be up here. Um, and then the sweetness comes today because I have the honor of finishing up our current sermon series. We are studying stories of women in the Bible um, who have been chosen by God for specific purposes. And I get to share kind of this last story that we've chosen for this series on this woman with the alabaster jar. And I am excited. It's an amazing, really beautiful story. And so it feels very sweet that I get to share this with you all today. Um, and I hope we'll just enjoy this this morning, getting to study the scriptures together. I know I'll just cherish every moment. Let's pray, and we'll start. God, we give you thanks for this opportunity to open your word. God, to have these stories from 2,000 years ago of your son on this earth. God, would we open our minds today to learn more about who you are. God, more about how loved we are. And how much, God, you want to love through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about love, which feels a little fitting for Mother's Day. I think this woman in this story understands God's love, as I've studied this scripture this week, better than most people in, that we find in scripture, um, even though she is an unnamed woman. And uh, we'll start to unpack that in a moment, but it made me start to think about the extravagant kind of experiences of love I've received in this world uh, in my short life. And I would invite you to think about that. What is one experience you can think of, of just an extravagant kind of love someone showed you? Um, I will share the one story I thought of. Uh, I, saw, I thought of a few. I'm blessed. I thought of a few. And certainly some of them have to do with my parents which is, and my mom, which is amazing. The one I thought of um, is a little vulnerable for me to share. Seven years ago this week, my boyfriend at the time uh, told me to save the Saturday of that weekend because he wanted to spend the day with me. And he picked me up from my house early in the morning and handed me a mixtape or a mixed CD. Uh, and we, it was loaded with mostly love songs and like so songs by my favorite artists. And we put it into the CD player and he drove me to my favorite coffee shop. I think it was Starbucks at the time. Um, yeah, shame now, right? But... Um, and we uh, went up to the counter, and the barista uh, handed me my Americano and my, a red rose with a poem on it. Um, and then we proceeded to go to, like, five other places, favorite kind of places for us around the city. And a red rose and a poem was, or a verse was, like, at every one of these places. And then we went to Madison Park and pulled, Matt, <clears throat> I mean, my boyfriend at the time, pulled two kayaks out of his car, inflatable kayaks, and we inflated them, and we kayaked to the Arboretum, where we got to find, uh, we, it was actually really hard, it was opening day, a boating day, and so it was <laughs> a really <laughs> crazy time to be kayaking, but we made it. I'm sweating, but it's good, and um, yeah, and we got out, and there's a blanket laid on the grass with Thai food in the center of it, and uh, two sets of chopsticks, and we sat down to a meal together, 
And we finished eating, and I turned, uh, and my roommate and longtime friend Megan was walking towards me with a red rose. And then, like, all of these other people from my life, my sister and some of my closest friends, walked towards me one at a time with a red rose. And you can probably guess where this is going. I'm kind of like, okay, this is, how long is this day to be? But uh, sure enough, my boyfriend got down on one knee and held out a ring to me in the presence of all of these people closest to me. And he proposed to marry me. And I can't remember a word that he said, but, he, but I remember that I said yes. And I remember that as soon as Matt stood up, literal fireworks went off behind us. Um, I realize this is a big story of an engagement. A little sappy, not everyone's cup of tea, I'm sure. Uh, some of you might be squirming right now just thinking about that kind of story. But I left out the part where Matt already knew uh, beyond much of a reasonable doubt that I would say yes. Um, we actually already had a date. We already had a place booked. Um, he did that, not me. But um, Matt's dad had been about to deploy overseas, and he needed to know when to come home on leave before he left. And so he was kind of saying, if you guys are serious, let me know. And so it forced us to start to talk about these things. So Matt didn't have much concern about what I would say. He wasn't necessarily trying to woo me with this grand gesture. He, he'd already been successful at that. He was simply trying to show me in his creative, big vision, big gesture kind of way that he loved me. And it was extravagant. It was over the top. It was much more than what was required or needed. And I'll never forget it, right? I can tell that story like it was yesterday. It was the love that was expressed behind it that was so powerful to me. And I, it's a vulnerable to share that because I don't love being the center of attention, if you know me. It's probably a good thing it was a surprise. I would have maybe not answered the door that morning. But I share it because I caught a glimpse of what extravagant love looks like that, that day. Um, I allowed myself to feel the love behind it. And this morning, I think we're going to find that God's extravagant love for us um, first has to be accepted. I had to accept and receive that gift. We have to accept and receive God's love for us first. And this woman is going to teach us about that, and then it can be reflected outward. And like a mirror image to the world, we reflect that extravagance we've experienced. The woman with the alabaster jar shows this in a really cool way, how this extravagant love God had for her that she'd experienced reflected outward with almost equal extravagance. And there's three lessons I want to look at. This is in your bulletin if you're an outline person. The first lesson is about open-handed acceptance. The second lesson is going to be about the necessity of bold interruptions. And the third lesson is what extravagant reflection looks like. Before we get to these three lessons, I just want to do a little bit of setting up the context for this passage so it's not just sort of a passage out of nowhere for us because we have been hopping through Scripture each week. In earlier in Luke 7, we see Jesus has arrived at a town called Nain. This is uh, verse 11. And the first thing he sees when he gets to the town is he sees this child-sized coffin being carried through the town center with a woman weeping next to it. And he has so much compassion for the woman walking, weeping, that he stops the procession, he raises the boy, her only child, back to life. And then the young man sits up, starts immediately talking, and Jesus gives him back to his mom. A few verses later, in verse 22, John the Baptist's disciples have come to this town of Nain to sort of check out this Jesus 
on, on behalf of John. John is in jail. They're supposed to report back to John about whether Jesus is the real Messiah. And Jesus' response is to say, just tell them what you've seen over these last few weeks you've been with me. Tell him that the blind see. Tell him the lame walk. Lepers are made clean. The dead are raised. The good news is being preached to the poor. This is the evidence of who I am. In other words, Jesus has created quite a stir in this little town of Nain. Lives have been changed in this town. And then, of course, one night during his visit, a Pharisee, a strict observer of Jewish law, invites Jesus over for dinner into his house. And even though the Pharisees have been skeptical of Jesus, they have been causing problems for him in other towns, Jesus goes to dinner at this Pharisee's house and sits down at his table. And a little quick cultural note here to help us understand sort of this story a little better. Uh, the scriptures say that Jesus reclined at the table. And it doesn't necessarily mean that he was laying back like, like we might think of reclining. It means he sat with his feet under and behind him, away from the table, probably on the floor or on a long, wide bench. This will help us kind of as we picture this happening. And then it's while Jesus is reclining in that way, a woman enters Simon's house, possibly unnoticed, and comes to stand right behind his feet holding a jar. And what is unusual about this woman there may be many things. One thing that's unusual is that uh, she's weeping. She's not just tearing up. She is crying, possibly uncontrollably, possibly ugly crying, what we would call today. <laughs> and so let's stop here for a moment. We're going to get to the rest of this story, but I want to clarify a few things about who this woman is who shows up um, and what we for sure know about her. Because we don't know who she is, and there's a lot of debate about this. Some scholars are quite sure they do know who she is. Uh, a story similar to this one shows up in every other gospel telling of Jesus's life. But in this Luke 7, we don't know who this woman is. We can't tell from scripture. She remains unnamed, and we will leave her unnamed as scripture does. All that we read from the text is that she was a sinner, and she was from this city. She was from Nain. And so the second thing to think about of, for this woman is that she, we don't know for sure what kind of sinner she was. We'd like to think, we'd, we'd like to guess, right? Most of the church down through the ages has automatically assumed this woman must have been a pro- prostitute, and it is very possible, but all the text tells us is that she is a sinner. And that, uh, this word, sinner, is in the Greek the same word applied to tax collectors, applied to uh, just general, all of us who have general sin. So she may have been a thief. She may have been the wife of a tax collector who got her wealth through dubious means, and she very, very, very well likely have been uh, in the trap of prostitution, possibly sold into the life as a very young girl and living this her, way her whole life. But what is clear is that she is ostracized in the community, that For whatever reason, people know as soon as they see her that she's a sinner, unclean, unfit for any respectable Jewish man or woman to associate with her. She was treated as a thing not to be touched, kind of at all costs. And that means she was most likely poor, most likely desperate to be treated like a human being. And with that context, let's talk about the lessons I think this woman has to teach us this morning about love. And we'll actually begin at the end of the passage in Luke. So if you have your Bibles open, sorry, uh, we're going to turn to verse 47. We're going to learn about this open-handed acceptance that this woman models. 
In verse 47, Jesus tells his host, Simon the Pharisee, that this woman's sins, which were many, have been forgiven. It's a past tense in the Greek word. They have been already forgiven. So she shows up and Jesus already recognizes that she has repented of her sins, that they are forgiven. And what I want to infer from this text, and that's an important word that doesn't say it explicitly, this woman has already encountered Jesus during her stay in town. I just reminded us that Jesus' visit to Nain started with him raising a boy from the dead in the middle of town, right? So it's likely that if she didn't witness it herself, she has heard about him. And like probably most of the townspeople has probably been showing up to a lot of the places Jesus is, following him around, watching the way he's healing blind people, hearing him preach good news to people like her. So whether she encountered him one-on-one or whether she just heard his offer of forgiveness and believed it, she enters this house already knowing that she is deeply loved and that her life of sin has been wiped away, that she's clean that Jesus has accepted her wholeheartedly. And so what does that teach us today? Uh, I think this woman could not escape the fact that her life was messed up, that she needed help, outside help. She was not capable of change in her own. And it was in her face every day, right, as people ignored her, as people called her names, as people refused to touch her, even look at her. And she knew that to get out, she would need help, that the systems in her culture wouldn't allow her to do it on her own. And so when Jesus comes to town, she must have started to hang on his every word because he was looking at her. He was talking to her and people like her, and no one did that. And since she's at the end of herself, she is more than ready to receive what he says. So when he says, perhaps in Luke 5, I have not come for the healthy but the sick, she identified herself as the sick. When he said later in Luke, I have come to seek and to save the lost, she said, I am the lost, that's me. And when he says, repent and your sins will be forgiven, she's ready to repent and believe that those sins, though they were many, were forgiven. She hears and believes, and she's ready to receive from Jesus. And my question for us in this room is how many of us are good at this, at receiving, at asking for help, at knowing we need help, at saying, I absolutely can't do this on my own. God, I need you. At saying, yes, I was wrong. I need forgiveness. Ladies in the room, mothers in the room, I'm talking to all of us because this is men and women, but I know, I know from personal experience, us as women struggle with this. We struggle to ask someone else for help. Maybe we would never ask someone for help unless it's absolutely clear that we are at the, our rock bottom, we need it. Over the years, we as a church have offered to bring meals to any of you who have had surgery, who... Uh, just are having a hard time with managing parents and kids, kind of the in-between generation, or certainly after a baby comes, which is the most common, probably. And I have been told countless times, even by those of you who have said yes to that, to receiving meals, that it was hard. It was hard to receive. It was hard to say yes to that and be willing for someone else to make you a meal and bring it to your house. And that's just a little food. Uh, God, help us when we actually need someone to come clean our house, or someone to bathe us, or help us get to the bathroom, right? And I think it's a discipline to receive. I learned this somewhat from Libby Chapman in our women's retreat this last month. To admit our need, especially when it's not forced on us, but when we, like when we have surgery or have a baby, 
or get sick, but to every day come to a place of saying, God, I need you. I'm not perfect. I'm not put together. We li- I like to believe I'm in control all of the time. And admitting we're not, admitting we need God for the littlest things is the first step to receiving the true extravagant love God has for us. I think when we become aware of our need for God, we become aware of God moving in our lives, and we start to listen to the word, words of Jesus with hunger and with thirst. We hang on to them, and we start to realize God is offering us this unfettered kind of love every day, regardless of whether we're doing well or not, whether we have it all together, whether our sins and our imperfections are showing or not, and that kind of love is scandalous if you think about it. It's scandalous if you think about the worst of sinners, quote-unquote. Paul tells us, tells the Ephesians in chapter 3, his prayer is that they would receive that God's love is wider and deeper and longer and higher than they could ever imagine, and that they would begin to understand that the love of God surpasses knowledge, head knowledge. It can't be fully explained with words, but grasping just a hint of this kind of love starts with acknowledging who we are that we did not create ourselves, that we are utterly dependent on the God of the universe who created each one of us and who sustains us every day. It's much like we are dependent on the mother who bore us. We are dependent on that woman who gave us life. We are dependent on the God of the universe who gave us life. None of us would be here without him. And that same God who created us desperately wants to be with each one of us, no matter what. And he sees each one of us this way. He sees the woman with this jar. He's more in love with us than we could fathom. And when we acknowledge that love and receive that extravagant love and humility, we can be like this woman. We can be free to express it to others. And I spent a long time on that point, I know, because if we miss it, the rest of it is worthless. This woman with the alabaster jar encounters Jesus and is changed as a result. So changed that when she hears Jesus is having dinner in her neighborhood, she decides to show up so that she can meet Jesus in person. And it's a bold interruption she's about to make. She's going to have to enter a man's house who probably despises her, who will probably shame her. And to add that to the fact, she's going to join a dinner party she wasn't invited to and she would never be invited to. But she's driven by an extravagant love. And I believe the Holy Spirit... And so she goes, and the moment she lays her eyes on Jesus, she cries. But other than her crying, she doesn't actually say a word in this whole story. She simply interrupts their dinner party with her presence, and she goes about doing the thing she knows God has chosen her to do. And we're going to talk about that act in a moment, because it's beautiful. But first, I want to pause and talk about this woman's willingness to interrupt, to interrupt a bunch of people's lives in order to respond to God's love. And it might seem like a little part of this story, but I think it's a really key one, and I think interruptions are where God works most often. And it happens all the time in Scripture. I was thinking through, and these are just some of the first ones that came to mind. I think it's the interruptions that actually make God's story fun to read about in Scripture. Moses is on a hike with his sheep, and he is interrupted by a burning bush. Ruth's life is interrupted by the death of all of the men in her family. Paul's trip to Damascus, interrupted by a blinding light. Mary and Joseph's engagement, interrupted by a new baby in their midst. Andrew and Peter, fishing. It's their livelihood. It's all they've probably ever known. Jesus walks up one day and asks them, do you want to become disciples of a rabbi? 
and they make a radical career change. In almost all those instances, these folks, though, had to choose to accept that interruption or ignore it. Moses could have said, whoa, my sheep have got to get moving it's before dark. I'm going to pretend I didn't see that. That's probably lack of water. Ruth could have said, just because my husband died doesn't mean I need to leave everyone I know and go live with my mother-in-law. Andrew and Peter could have easily said, we barely know how to read, let alone study the scriptures with you, Rabbi. We're sticking to what we know. And this woman from Luke 7 easily could have chosen to wait until Jesus wasn't busy, maybe see if she could somehow run into him in town. But no, she's going to seek him out right now. And what that means is she is going to, by her very presence, be an interruption. Not only for a dinner party, but a bunch, she's going to interrupt a bunch of social norms and dinner party rules and Jewish purity laws and the whole status quo for a person like her. And she's going to rock the system because she's following God's movement in her life and she's responding to the love she's experienced. And we, got, we have got to be willing, once we have experienced this love, to allow that love to interrupt us to follow God's spirit into places that are other, into places that are foreign, uncomfortable. And when we see God move, we are bold enough to follow. It'll cause us to enter some places where we are the minority. Some of you in this room do that all the time. Most of us have to choose it, where we have to choose to go to places that don't feel good to us, don't feel safe necessarily. It'll cause us to perhaps violate cultural norms, It'll cause us to respond to inconvenient moments. And following God's leading will cause us to interrupt other people's lives too. And that's harder for me. It'll make your spouse maybe a little shocked. It'll make your coworkers or your dinner party a little uncomfortable. But in order to enter into extravagant love, both receiving it and then reflecting it, we have to be willing to interrupt our own lives and the lives of other people. Last week, I showed up at Trinity Presbyterian, where my husband works, for a meeting. And just as Matt was about to start leading the meeting... A man showed up, a young man, who was desperate for a safe place to just be. He didn't want money. He didn't want food. He already had a bus ticket to get to where he needed to go. I think he was going to Bellingham. But whether due to gang violence or something else, he just needed a safe place to be and a safe way to get to the bus station. And I was very aware of the 15 people waiting for us to start the meeting. And so I was ready to say, I don't think we can help you with that right now. Uh, We're about to start a meeting. And Matt, who is much less stressed about time management things than I am, said, let's figure out if we can help you. And he walked him back, and he found him a phone, and he waited while he made a call. And then, like, 15 minutes went by, and he figured out that uh, the lead pastor was willing, Randy, was willing to give him a ride to the bus depot. And we got our meeting started, like, 10 or 15 minutes late. And in case you couldn't tell from that scenario, I'm not real comfortable with interrupting other people's time. I'm I'm okay with being interrupted sometimes, but interrupting other people? To show, I think interrupting lives, though, seems to be the business God's in. Interrupting our lives to show us more about who he is, to show us the depths of his love for us. And when we shut those opportunities down, when we say, I'm sorry, I'm just too busy, we're likely about to miss out on the Spirit's movement in our lives. It just seems to work that way. And when we say, I don't want to interrupt them right now, God, that seems scary. We miss the chance to allow God to move through us. So when, it's a, when we allow our lives to be interrupted, we put ourselves in a position to know more about the depth of God's love for us. It just seems to work that way. 
In 2 Corinthians, Eugene Peterson talks about this extravagant love. Um, And that is what we are trying to put ourselves in a position to do when we interrupt other people, is to express that extravagant, lavish love in a reflection of what we've received. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, this is the message version. God throws caution to the wind, giving to the needy in reckless abandon. His right-living, right-giving ways never run out, never wear out. This most generous God who gives seed to the farmer that becomes bread for your meals is more extravagant with you, more than extravagant with you. He gives you something you can then give away, which grows into full-formed lives, robust in God, wealthy in every way. It's that image of us receiving this extravagant love from God that then can be given away, that literally overflows out of us. And this is the final lesson this woman has to share with us this morning. She's received an experience of God's love and forgiveness so lavish, she can't help but respond with lavish love. So she takes those tears, which are flowing so freely in response to what she's experienced, and she allows them to fall on Jesus' feet, which are dusty, unwashed. And then she doesn't have a towel, and so she bends down and she uses her hair to dry his feet off. And then she bends down further and she kisses those feet before her, the feet of the one who brought her the best news of her life. And then she takes the alabaster jar she brought with her, this jar that's full of expensive perfume, perhaps worth years of wages for her. And she doesn't just dab it on his feet, which would be enough, right? She says she poured it. She lavished it on his feet. And Jesus takes it all in. He has learned to receive. So he receives from this woman. He doesn't protest. He doesn't stop her. He welcomes what she offers with humility and grace and, I think, love in his eyes. And what's so striking about her treatment of Jesus is that then Jesus compares it for Simon to what he's received from Simon. We read that Simon has been watching this woman and thinking to himself, well, I guess we'll figure out now whether this guy's really a prophet. I'm going to keep quiet. I'm going to see if he figures out what kind of woman is touching him and if he responds the way a good Jewish man should. But Jesus turns to his host, I think reading his mind, and reminds him that this woman has done what Simon, his host, has failed to do. Hospitality, side note, is a big deal in Jewish culture. You've probably heard this before. And it would be routine to do a few things. To provide water for your guests to wipe their dusty, sandaled feet off before they entered your home. To kiss a guest on the cheek as a way of greeting when they entered. And then perhaps to honor a guest by anointing their head with just a little oil as they sat down at the table. All very normal parts of a dinner party. Today, it might be similar to being offered a handshake or a hug when you walked into someone's house, to being invited to sit down in a living room, to being offered a drink when you sat down at the table. Normal dinner party things. But Simon, Jesus' host, has failed to express even these basic rules of hospitality, and he's clearly suspicious of Jesus. And so he's skipped all these customs. We don't necessarily know why, perhaps because the simple act of inviting Jesus into his home is honor enough for this guy. Whatever it is, though, he is not reflecting God's extravagant love to his guest. He's doing the bare minimum of what is expected. And Simon doesn't recognize his own need for anything from Jesus. 
for salvation, for wholeness. He thinks he's kind of doing everything he needs to do. And therefore, there's very little of God's love reflecting in him. And it shows up in his lack of hospitality. It shows up in his judgment of this woman who appears in his house. And what he reflects instead is self-sufficiency, is suspicion, and skepticism. So my question for us is, what do our lives reflect? Do we reflect this extravagant love and generosity, moving us to push comfort zones and to interrupt our lives? Or do we reflect a love that's tempered, that's when, you know, there when it's socially appropriate, culturally appropriate, that's conditional on the behavior of others? Matt and I are preparing to go to Haiti, I've told many of you this, on a mission trip with uh, the church he works for this summer. And in preparation, we're reading the book Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's a great book if you haven't read it. Uh, It's a biography about a man named Paul Farmer, who's a world-famous doctor who builds a medical clinic in Haiti and pours out his life to serving the poorest of the poor. And I don't know if I've ever heard of someone who loves extravagantly like this guy. He literally treats every person as if they were his friend, as fights for their health, fights for them to receive the best possible medical care, no matter how much they make, no matter their religion, no matter their country. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it's really impractical and foolish and not cost-effective. And he is judged all over the world by doctors because he does this. He'll pay thousands of dollars. He'll find the money somewhere to treat a patient in Haiti. And there's a story about how a patient in Haiti was being treated for tuberculosis by one of Paul Farmer's clinics, and he missed his monthly TB appointment at the clinic where they make sure that they're still taking their meds, which is very important so that it doesn't become drug-resistant. I've learned a lot about drugs reading this book. Uh, Good drugs. And um, (laughs) so Paul Farmer, a world-renowned doctor with medical degrees from Harvard, sets out on a three-hour one-way trek, mostly on foot, to get to this guy's house and asks him, are you still taking your TB medication? Why did you miss your appointment? And the guy says, yes, I'm still taking it. I just, I got mixed up and somebody told me it was a different date than my appointment was supposed to be. There were no problems, but Paul had to be sure. And he says, this was worth it. It was worth it to be sure. That five-hour round-trip journey, worth it. And he believes it's always, always worth it to pursue your patient's health without fail, without compromise. He's an amazing model of this extravagant love. And it's the kind of love we're called to reflect. And we don't do it because we're good people, and we don't do it to be good Christians. We love people with extravagant love because we have experienced it. And if you have experienced it, you want other people to experience it too. And if you haven't experienced it lately, or you aren't experiencing it at all, my simple challenge to you this week is to ask God to show you how much he loves you this week. And if you are experiencing it, even right now, even in this service, then ask God to show you a new way to reflect it extravagantly, lavishly to someone. And to close, I just want to encourage you, church, that I have experienced this from you over the last four years. This church has a tremendous amount of this love to reflect out. I expect great things from Bethany Northeast in these coming years that I'll get to watch because I'm not going very far. And it's not because you are so great, although I think you are. Uh, I, I expect it because so many of you hold your hands open to experiencing God's love in new ways. 
You are open to God interrupting your lives. You're open to God using you to extravagantly love people. And it will be felt and it will be seen in Lake City. And I have a couple examples of this happening. There are tons. I thought of a few. Alicia Wasink, a longtime member of Bethany and Bethany Northeast, has faithfully prepared meal after meal for the community meal we serve once a month. You've probably heard about it in Lake City. Uh, And it's a meal she helped start, she and her small group, over a decade ago. And each time, as she prepares to serve the people experiencing homelessness and food insecurity in Lake City, she prepares truly gourmet food. When I would be tempted, and have, when she's not around and I'm on duty, uh, said, oh, you know, we can buy some spaghetti sauce at the store and we can make spaghetti. Done. And she is eagerly preparing Thai lemongrass soup. Or she is preparing a red currant glaze with ingredients I've never found in the store before for the ham that we are going to serve for Easter dinner. She goes above and beyond and loves extravagantly in the way that she prepares meals as if it was in her home and a dinner party. In fact, if you've never been to the meal, I encourage you to go so that you can experience this amazing food. She's loving extravagantly. We have a family in our midst here in Northeast, I know they're not here today, who adopted a baby boy who needed a home uh, after sort of unexpectedly signing up for adoption and then having their own child. So they had a child under a year old at home when they adopted a new baby boy into their family. And then not three months later, if I've got the timeline right, they said yes to fostering their adopted sons, two older siblings, when their family situation deteriorated. So now they've gone from a family with zero to a family with four boys under five in a matter of months. They have shown tremendous courage, tremendous extravagant love over what have been years now of court dates and fights for the stability of these beloved foster sons. They've loved extravagantly, beyond what was expected of them. We have people who show up with food every single time a new baby is born in our community, and that's a lot of times. (laughs) We have people who drove a truck at 7 a.m. every Sunday morning for years so that we could have worship at a high school. We have people who pray for you, this congregation, every day and who ask me all the time how I can specifically be praying for people in the congregation. Keep this work up. Keep loving extravagantly. I am so blessed by you. It has been my great privilege to be part of this community these last four years. I'll invite the worship end up and I'll pray for you, believe it or not. God, we give you thanks what a gift community is, what a gift friendships are, what a gift your people are, God, to one another. Would we be a gift to one another? Would you help us, God, to love each other extravagantly and love the city you've put this church in extravagantly, God? Would we know most deeply the love you have for each of us? And would we know it not only, God, by what you do for us, in forgiving us, in loving us, no matter who we are, but God, also in the experience we have of others showing us your love. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.